Hello and welcome to No Direction's official PaizoCon 2019 seminar coverage in partnership with Paizo. Our coverage would not be possible without the help of our con staff, Paizo, and our patrons. Find more seminar recordings at nodirectionpodcast.com. Uh, I'm James Jacobs. I'm the creative director for Pathfinder. and I am Amanda Hammond. I'm the managing developer for Starfinder. I am Leanne Marcel. I write things and they give me money for it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Todd Gardner. I am the the uh, director of organized play for Chaosium, makers of Call of Cthulhu. Okay. Um, so right before we get off, uh, the most important thing if you're going to run a, a horror game is to make sure that all of your players know that it's a horror game, that you have the consent of everybody, that you're all in the right mindset and have the interest in it. Um, it's Nothing will kill a game faster than it showing up to play the game and it's not the game you wanted and it's, or it's not the game you're comfortable with um, and that's just really important. Um, horror is something that I've always, it's always been a part of me. I remember going to my grandma's house when I was like maybe nine or ten and she's like, hey James, check this out and she gave me Pet Cemetery, and, um, <laughs> and that stuck pretty well. So. Um, but that's not everybody's, you know, upbringing or anything like that. So just make sure you, the more it, it kind of goes both ways. The more you know your players, the more you know what their their limits and interests in and uh, in, in the game is. Um, the more fun it's going to be for everybody. It's not fun if it's if it's like an ambush. I don't know if there's anything else you want to add. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that uh, when we say consent, we're not necessarily saying that you have to give spoilers for every single thing that's going to happen in the game. We're more talking about um, providing information about the categorical types of horror that the game will involve, um, both so that your players can be prepared if it's something that they know really kind of bothers them but they're okay with if they know that it's coming, or uh, to hit on um, a player being able to disclose to you, hey, I'm not okay with a certain type of thing. Um, maybe they do or don't tell you the reason, but you as the game master know to avoid that specific thing. Um, because like James said, the biggest uh, goal that we have when we run horror games is uh, that everybody has an intense experience, everybody has a memorable experience, but that everybody has a fun experience. And if you accidentally hurt one of your friends, um, you know, even unintentionally because you didn't know that something was a problem, then you've gone right past um, fun and created a really um, big problem for folks. So. Uh, that's sort of a little bit about that. Um, there's there's several techniques that you can explore uh, for avoiding problematic uh, content that triggers people or causes harm to people. Something called an X card. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that on this panel at all. Um, but you can basically create a card and allow the players to touch it if there's a problem mm -hmm. topic that comes up or something that's described in a way that they're not comfortable going toward. You can have the player just touch it. And uh, as a game master, you can just kind of redirect that content yeah. a little bit to keep the, the game flowing while also making sure that everybody uh, is OK uh, yep. once the session is over. One very small secondary point that I would add to that is that consent is important not only so that you can avoid you know, squicking your players out, but um, so that they understand that the rules might move a little bit differently. Hmm. And that some of the things are not that you don't know the rules or that you're deliberately breaking the rules or that this is even a problem that they need to solve. It's just like, no, sometimes things are going to be surreal and there isn't going to be an explanation. And that too is part of the game. Yeah. Yep. Sure. You also have to be, Policeman's too strong a term, but you have to be the enforcer of the players' actions yeah. to the other players or just their conversation. Uh, whether that's trivial things like being too jokey mm -hmm. um, and kind of breaking the mood and the tension, uh, or whether that is taking things too far themselves yeah. in areas that uh, the other players have already expressed, that that's their boundary. Yeah. Um, that's an interesting segue as well. Um, 
in addition to like kind of like like you saying policing and making sure that the the mood is right and make sure that you know the players are there to have a horror experience but also it's it's it can be tricky like you can do things like uh like adjusting like the light levels or something like that or use like you know de music decorations or, or music is yeah. another great thing you can use to help set mood or something like that um uh, one of my friends, uh, Wes Schneider, is, is do, does horror stuff all the time, and uh, he'll do things like you know ban cell phones from the game because they're super distracting. Um, so it really is—it's like setting the ground rules for everything before you you get going. Mm -hmm. So yeah, cool. cool. So you have stories, you said. I do have stories. I don't know if we want to um, start by going into classifications of different ways to achieve various horror effects. Um, but I guess I'll start with one of my two stories. I only have two stories, that's it. So after these two stories, I'm out of material. Um, so 50% of what I have to talk about here today is uh, one of the things that I think is really key in horror is that the players have to drive what's happening. You know, they can't be passive, but it's also really hard to strike that balance between, well, they drive everything, and so it's going to become more action adventure than horror. Um, so one of the things that you can do is kind of strip down and limit their resources. And so uh, the story that I want to tell is what I call the button smile man. And the way it works is whenever they cast a spell, anybody in the group casts any kind of spell whatsoever, regardless of the type of magic that they're using. Once they step into the area that is collectively understood to be the horror realm, so that could be, for example, Briarstone Asylum, could be one of those areas, you know, from the Strange Anne's uh, adventure path. Or, now you've all been cursed by this witch and your magic isn't quite working right. You know, whatever. They've crossed a boundary. Everybody understands that. Once they do that, every time they cast a spell, whoever does so gets a progressive vision of what I call the button smile man. The first time he appears as a pale broken figure, his face is all angles and, angles and hollows seen from a distance. It flicks a tongue, a pointed papery tongue, and turns toward the scent of your air. Then the vision ends, the spell goes off. Nothing happens until the next time they cast a spell. The second time they happen, the pale figure is waiting, crouched patiently on all four wrong angled limbs. And it hasn't moved from its prior position, except that this time its dead white face is turned toward you. It has no eyes. It has only a pair of shiny black buttons crossed in the center with little X's of white thread. The buttons aren't made of horn or dyed shell. They don't shine at all. They are only flat black, and they are staring at you. And then the button-eyed man begins to smile, and your spell comes through. Then, every time they cast a spell, it's a little bit closer. It's a little more fixated on that person. So they know, well, we better really need this spell, because if you're not dying, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'd rather not find out. So they become the ones who drive that story. and. It becomes a self-imposed limitation. You're not saying, I, you can't cast your spells. Oh no, you can cast all your spells. Go ahead. And they're gonna be like, okay, that's way worse than anything I could think of. So, sorry, Bob, you're just gonna do this dungeon on two hit points because you're not dead yet. <laughs> that's uh, one of the elements of that that I think is really, really good for horror is um, you describe the button-eyed man, or, or in, that he's, he's getting close and all that. You don't tell what he's going to do. And indeed, there might not ever be a point where they've cast too many spells. But the players don't know that. And uh, the, if you can leave it up to like their imaginations and their anticipations, uh, they're going to come up with something far more frightening than anything you can come up with. You just have to like plant the seeds and, and, and let them do the work. And then you can like watch their reactions. and. and uh, uh, build off it, and you can build some really cool story elements. Like, 
I was running a uh, game uh, for a bunch of the folks at uh, Paizo, and uh, one of them, James Sutter, he, he really gets into the stories and all that, because he ran the fiction line for so long. He's just, <laughs> that's the way he thinks. And uh, he was playing a character called Kieran the Heretic, and uh, his whole thing was he wanted to go take the test of the Starstone and become a god and then tell everybody, I'm not really a god, I'm just a guy that got lucky and there's no such thing as gods. And so it was a pretty cool character concept. Um, but um, I decided that that was going to be one of the things that I was going to kind of get in under his nerves and, and kind of made the idea that he would attract the attention of this, this powerful demon that was active in the area. And I didn't really have it figured out in my head how that was going to happen. And um, so they're going up the hill to this, uh, this haunted house. And uh, I, I'm describing like there's a, there's a flock of, there's all these seagulls sitting in the trees. And all of a sudden, they all turn and look at you, James, your character. All of the seagulls are looking at you. And in the middle of this flock, there's one red seagull that seems to be the mastermind of all. And that's all I said. And, and Sutter was like, oh, it's the red bishop. I knew it. I knew the red <laughs> bishop would be here or something like that. And I'm like, I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> yes, the Red Bishop nods and they fly off, but they're very quiet. You've never heard seagulls be this quiet. And um, that's really all I did for like a long time. And it just kind of stuck in his head and he was like wondering what was going on. And that character ended up taking on a life of its own. So it's, it's a really, really powerful tool to like take what the player character reacts or the player reacts and kind of build off of it. Yeah. I really think that silence and the downtimes of horror games are really where that tension builds and really where you as a GM need to pay attention to what the characters are talking about because a lot of times, kind of like what James said about Sutter's reaction to the Red Seagull, you had no real intent that there was going to be anything to that other mm -hmm. than just kind of a thing to freak him out. Mm -hmm. But then when he started talking about the Red Bishop, you could concoct all these ideas for mm -hmm. what the Red Bishop might be and what might be coming after him and yep. try to, to build that into the, the narrative. And in that same way, whenever you're running a horror game and you describe something that's just weird or that the players don't expect, a really good technique is to just get quiet and just sit there and in some ways almost unsettlingly stare at the players and listen to them talk and they will come up with all these ideas of what they think is going on or what awful thing might be coming next or maybe what they think that you have planned because you're some heinous GM and you can take those ideas and act like they were yours the whole time because they <laughs> didn't know. So, um, or you can build off of them or riff off of them um, but really like being able to be collaborative with the players to build their horror experiences without them realizing it is a very powerful tool. I wanted to touch on something there. Um, a very powerful tool is establishing normalcy. Whether mm. that's just um, a regular game session in which things are all running normal and whatever system you're running, Call of mm -hmm. Cthulhu is normal people, so anything that's supernatural automatically triggers a breaking of normalcy. Mm -hmm. But in fantasy games, Pathfinder, you establish normalcy and then do something that clearly seems to be against mechanical rules mm -hmm. at, or the laws of nature or what the deities allow. Anything that's appropriate for your game system, you break a rule and then don't explain it. Mm -hmm. You've just created the eeriness that starts the right theme, moods, and uh, sense around the table mm -hmm. that starts a, a great horror session. I think that's a really great point. Um, a lot of times you get a much more powerful effect by using something small. So, you know, like there's so many ways you can explode a body, I've pretty much done them all. Um, <laughs> but after a while, it's just so much core. You know, it's like, wow, cool fireworks. I've seen all those colors before. Um, <laughs> but you can make it more effective by doing something that is small and that has a very strong expectation of normalcy and then it just doesn't happen. For example, a waterfall that runs backwards. 
Or even just like you spill a cup of water, the water pours out, it pulls back into the cup. That's weird. Mm -hmm. And that's weird in a way where it's very fundamentally weird, but nothing actually threatening is happening. It just has that effect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, You can do the same thing. The, the easiest way I've found to, to do this sort of kind of unsettling players, because um, I mean, you, if you do something like that, it's like, well, that's maybe it's a water elemental or something like that. And then you can run with that if you want. Um, but it's, it's um, regardless of the game, there's always like mechanics by which you roll the dice to figure out what happens. And the player characters, that's their, their anchor. That's how they know something's happening. They roll, and if it's low, they're in trouble. If it's high, it's, it's, they're good. Um, and so one of my favorite techniques to start getting people kind of off kilter and nervous is you ask for them to roll stuff for no reason. So you'll play in the game, it's like, all right, everybody, make a uh, reflex saving throw. And they're just, nothing's going on. And people like start getting a little nervous and they all roll and somebody might roll really low and somebody might roll really high. And then you're like, what'd you roll, it's 27? Hmm. Okay, well then you just keep going. Yep. <laughs> Nothing really happened. And, but, and then everybody's like, what was all that? And perception checks work really good for yep. Call of Cthulhu. Yep. Um, one of my favorite ones is to have people roll um, uh, spot hidden checks or listen checks. I think listen's more powerful. Yes. Yeah. yeah, listen is definitely because they'll roll things, them. Seeing things is too concrete. Yeah, and listen is great. And, and uh, so they roll them, and no matter what they roll, they never roll high enough. It's like, oh, no, you don't hear anything. But I rolled a 93. Yeah, you didn't hear it. <laughs> or, or and better. there really was nothing yeah. for them to hear. Well, on the critical, do you yeah. then make up something? Oh, that's true. The yeah. only that one person heard. Or did they? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I guess in Call of Cthulhu it would be a three, not a ninety-three. I gotta remember those rules. Gotta roll <laughs> you gotta run those games. <laughs> I know. I'll be fine. But yeah, um, it's also uh, aside from that, it's it's really helpful to know your not just your player, the players playing the game, but their characters. One thing that I like to do to, uh, when I start a new game is is I'll have people either like give me like a short little story about their character's history. Uh, not everybody wants to write or anything like that. So one of the things I do is like use campaign traits or something like that. And uh, people will pick these and each one of them will have sort of like a way they tie into the storyline. And if you're doing a horror game, um, you can use those as elements to, to kickstart their involvement in the story. Um, you don't want to do something like, uh, if, it's, if it's an element where it's like they have a, a, a uh, an NPC that they have like a child or, or a, a lover or an old uh, parent or something like that. You don't really want to use those types of things as like elements to force them into horror situations. Like, oh, your your kid got kidnapped and now now it's scary. I mean, that's that's that doesn't work. Um, Usually, yeah. Well, yeah. But if, if like the kid says, hey, I was just outside and um, there was a tree singing or something like that that's, that's off, then you can use them as vectors to start mm. getting the players into whatever weirdness you want to inflict yeah, on them. Yeah, I think that's also a really good point. Um, my policy is basically never threaten the kid, but the kid's classmate sure is weird. <laughs> and your child has to be in class with that weird kid all the time. And why are his teeth so sharp? And why are his hands on backwards? Yeah, that's another thing too, is it's like if no one else notices, uh, is it, you know, you start messing with the perception. You are the only window into the game that the players have. I mean, you it's it's easy for a GM to, to forget that, you know, you've got the entire adventure figured out, but if you forget to mention something, nobody will ever know anything about that. So you control, you know, what their, their focuses and intentions are, are on. Yeah, yeah. 
James, you had mentioned earlier that um, there are various different types of te techniques for creating the atmosphere mm -hmm. um, that you want in a horror game. You, do, do you guys want to talk a little bit about uh, what types of atmospheres are most effective for uh, running games in which we're building that tension and the suspense that we've been yeah. discussing? I think the most effective, one of the most effective ones I've seen, has anyone here played the game Dread? Okay, cool. Yeah. So Dread, <laughs> Dread is amazing. Uh, it's it's a very narrative game. <clears throat> the entire mechanics is a Jenga tower. Everybody here knows about Jenga, right? So it's this big Jenga tower, and it just sits on the middle of the table. And this is another thing that Wes introduced me to, and he's, he's super good at it. But um, so you know, you're sitting around the table, and whatever story you're telling, every time you want to do something, whether it's like I attack or I want to re do some research, I, you basically have to pull a piece out of the Jenga tower and stack it on top. And if you do that without knocking the tower over, you're successful. If it falls over, you messed up and you're dead. <laughs> if you knock it over on purpose, you are still dead, but you basically are guaranteed a successful, like, kind of sacrificial action. But the thing that's fascinating about it is at the start of this game, this Jenga tower is just sitting there, and people aren't really paying attention, and they're, like, just playing along and all that. But as the game progresses and the stakes <laughs> get higher toward the end, this tower starts getting really jittery, and people like their body language they start like backing away from the table nobody wants to touch it people don't really want to take actions because like that thing is going to fall over and it really works to build the tension people are like this this stack of wooden bricks is like super frightening because it's like it could fall over and then everything's over so it's, it's a really really effective tool that you can use um for pretty much any game i mean it, it'll go in with like you can say well, you can roll your die, and if they roll a die and it's a failure, it's like, well, you can try to roll again, but you have to move a brick on the tower. Yeah. We find uh, in a lot of different games, we have five game systems now, perhaps uh, uh, too many for me to master. <laughs> <laughs> but um, failure almost always leads to the more interesting outcome uh, than success. So uh, not the listen roll, the perception roll, but rather the social interaction that fails horribly the attempt to climb or stealth or uh, inspire yourself with a passion for your amour mm -hmm. in, in uh, Pendragon. Mm -hmm. Failure is almost always the more interesting result. So um, starting with easy things and building up to a higher level of difficulty, eventually surmounting what the players are capable of, no matter the game system, um, can be bent to a point where the failure forces them to choose new directions. Mm -hmm. um, in that eerie theme that you're keeping, that failure s gets to be something like the Jenga Tower mm -hmm. that they're quite afraid is going to happen, especially when they know things are ratcheting up point by point. Yeah. I think when you've created an environment like that in which there is that mm -hmm. ratcheting tension that's up and up and up, it also creates a really interesting situation in the same way that horror movie pacing tends to build and build and build and build up to uh, like a, a big reveal or a climax or something terrible that happens on screen, that really allows the players to sort of um, be able to make decisions, um, very, uh, in some ways, dramatic decisions of the heroic sacrifice. So the dr game Dread actually has that as a mechanic. If you are in a situation where the tower is about to fall and it looks like any brick that you pull is going to result in a death, um, however, like, everybody is almost about to die, you can make the decision to knock the tower over. Over. Um, and like what you were saying, as failure becomes more and more interesting, um, there hits a point where maybe the player decides, okay, well, you know what? I'm screwed anyway. I'm going to die. I'm mm -hmm. going to make myself go out with a bang. I'm going to make this meaningful. Mm -hmm. And that is often not only very memorable, but uh, really allows players to kind of reflect and think about why they did what they did and why did their you know friend make this choice 
for their character to sacrifice themselves and can really uh, just bring another level of meaning into horror games. Yeah. Um, so that is a tool that you can give them that they don't even necessarily realize that you're building for them. Um, I was just thinking about, like you were mentioning about failure and, and how sometimes that's an only an option. I mean, it, you could try something like limiting the resources the players have. Like if you uh, mm. are running a game where it's like, okay, every time you roll a die, you can assume that you roll average and you don't have to roll a die. But if you want to roll, you can roll it, but there's 20, 20 sided dice in this bucket and you have to roll it and then throw that die away. So you basically got 20 chances during the entire course of the game to roll. And you can re-roll as often as you want, but you're just churning through your, your rolls. And um, once you run out of dice, you're basically stuck with the you know either the average or the failures or something like that. But it's in the player character's hands. And it's that building sense of like, the longer you play, the closer you're getting to the climax, but the fewer resources you have is, is really a uh, classic you know horror trope. Um, what else? Another thing if I may start yeah. a new topic, uh, that can be very important for getting the player buy-in to uh, any scenario, but it's very important for horror, is to have stakes for the characters mm -hmm. that um, they are trying to avoid, not just a hypothetical negative outcome of the villagers get eaten by the kobolds, which is a standard adventure trope, but mm -hmm. rather that something horrifying is going to happen, uh, and world ending doesn't really fit that. It has to have a touch of personal mm. stakes, because that personal stakes for their character um, make it much more important that they succeed, mm -hmm. which again, when we get to the failure, means that uh, they don't want that failure to happen, yet some part of it's inevitable in yeah. horror. Yeah. Especially in Call of Cthulhu, everyone's going to die is the, uh, the trope. Yeah. Um, this is we why I really want to play the game. But we really want like two people to survive, finish reading the book, and the game ends while everyone else died in Act 3 yeah. uh, in order to achieve the yeah. stakes. Speaking of characters dying in Call of Cthulhu, it's as much of it is like established, like, oh, there's like blood dripping from the walls, and there's like this twitching underneath the shroud on the mm -hmm. floor, and you sound it's the sound of a cat crying, but it's in reverse, and just you can like mess with people. You can do things just with your, your group of players. Um, one of my favorite Call of Cthulhu stories, I was running uh, a game for just a bunch of friends. One of them is Eric Mona, who's my boss. Um, and uh, it was a Call of Cthulhu, early Call of Cthulhu game, uh, Shadows of Yogg-Sothoth, which is pretty super deadly. And there is a, uh, a serpent folk in there, and he's got this magic gun that basically, when you shoot it at somebody, they're pretty much going to die. <laughs> I mean, your defense is you have to have a constitution of 19 or 20, and then you can maybe survive. And the trick is that nobody ever has that because you can't because it's too high. Anyway, so um, it comes down to this attack. And I'm like, I don't want to like automatically pick someone, but I already know that if I have this shoot Eric's character, it's going to be interpreted as like, well, James is going to kill off his, his boss's character. He could do anything. <laughs> and so I'm like, I roll the die, and it comes up a six. And I'm like, oh, sorry, Eric. You can try to dodge, and he couldn't because he's he's playing like some sort of clumsy character anyway. And yeah, so his character gets killed by this moon gun, and um, that caught a lot of people off guard because they weren't expecting that sort of just sudden death to happen. Um, and uh, I think it caught Eric off the most off guard. <laughs> he still talks about it, but um, so that sort of situation where um, you know. You can make everything kind of feel off kilter, and you know, again, you all, all often you need to have all the buy-in of the player characters. But at that point, it's like, well, 
you, if you kill off, you can even like kind of orchestrate that. Like say if, if um, back to James Sutter at one point, he knew he was going to have to leave a campaign because he just, he didn't have the time to play in it and all that. And he was talking to Jason was running. This was a, a Eberron game. He was like, hey, Jason, I need to leave the campaign because I just don't have the time. Um, I want you to write me out a memorable death scene. <laughs> I like that. And uh, so Jason's like, oh, I can do that because I'm Jason and I love <laughs> killing player characters, especially dangerous. <laughs> but, um, and uh, so he set this whole thing up and gave Sutter's character a chance to basically dive in and do this kind of dramatic, you know, attack to stop this. I think it was a, a minotaur or an ogre or something like that. But it was a really just powerful scene um, on the one level, it was like this element of, um, you know, excitement and sacrifice, but it was also horror at the same point to see a character that has been in the game for so long get killed so suddenly, and uh, it works really well. One thing that I've also done before that I would recommend against is <laughs> the, the the plant, like mm. having one of your player characters be a hidden bad guy inside yeah. of the group. Uh, that doesn't work very well at all because everybody there is supposed to have fun. Everybody wants to, you know, get along together. And if you make one of the other players into your secret agent that is working against the party, that just causes the wrong sort of feelings. Yep. And that's the sort of example of like the type of thing you don't want to do in horror because then yeah. your game's done when this happens and people are. There's a meta game around this yeah. scenario, and the meta game has just been harmed. Yeah. 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 And you just that's, so that's the type of thing you really, really want to avoid. Having said that, I have seen it work out well once because the secret agent character had a change of heart and then joined the party for real. Mm -hmm. And at that point, it's really cool because they have all of this inside information and they can give you all this intelligence. Mm. Um, so oh, yeah. that was a neat reversal. Yeah, that's that's great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you can certainly work with players to like come up with uh, those types of plots. It works really well for, I think, one-shot games where you don't have like <laughs> this long investment of a campaign going on over, over years. Um, I think it also works really well for games like Werewolf or mm -hmm. um, um, there's been a couple of games based on the thing that came out recently where everybody's playing the game and some of the people are obviously the monster, but who the monster is is randomly determined by who turns over the right card or whatever. Mm -hmm. And at that point, the, the betrayal is handled by this mechanic that is not something that is, that is engineered. So mm -hmm. I think at that, that way, it feels, I guess, safer because mm -hmm. it's not something that somebody's like trying to, to mess with you. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just that that's the way the card turned up. So. Yeah, I think what is more effective most times than um, having a character that is a literal plant, like working with the bad guys or that turns secretly on the party and then the party doesn't find out until later, is having a character that has some sort of terrible secret or some sort of very uh, almost fatal flaw that they're hiding from the rest of the group that you are in on as the GM and you're working together with the player to sort of figure out the details of that, but that you can subtly kind of bring in over time in the game, in the campaign, or if it's a one-shot, you know, throughout the course of the session, and then uh, sort of like have the character have the agency to decide are they going to reveal this to their friends? Yeah. Maybe there's a reason why these awful creatures have been after them inexplicably, mm -hmm. uh, inexplicably while they're doing this other mission that seems unrelated. Well, it's because this character uh, made a bargain with the master of these creatures and uh, had turned on that bargain and, and broke that trust. And now there's uh, you know this other sort of thing that's going on. Um, but it can be very it can be very effective. Um, I would caution against doing that more more than once. So if there's a player who comes to you with an idea, usually that's the person to do it. But it's not a bad idea to suggest that if you look at your character's backstories and you think of something cool uh, to work with that player and um, see what can come out of that. Um, often in horror games, we get to a point in which uh, helplessness is a 
powerful tool. It shouldn't be an ongoing tool. Mm -hmm. And you head in that direction by removing resources or especially the player-involved mm -hmm. one. Call of Cthulhu and some other horror games do this by making people everyday people, not the massive heroes that you would see mm -hmm. in, say, Starfinder, but mm -hmm. you want to have a horror scenario. In Starfinder, they're always supposed to go and face against their opponents that the game mechanics, they, the players have learned to trust that they will be able to overcome. How in that style of game do you guys think you might impose a scene in which there's hope, uh, helplessness and the players can't be expressing their agency through combat? It's, um, it's tricky. It's Because uh, when we've wanted, we started working on the Strange Aeons Adventure Path, of course, the idea was that this is a Lovecraftian uh, story. And at the very start of it, a lot of Lovecraft stuff is just like ordinary people caught in these extraordinary situations. And so you kind of have to originally, you just have to abandon the fact that you can't really tell that story with certain games. Because Pathfinder and Starfinder, it's not about ordinary That's people. That's what I'm saying, yeah. But what you can do is you can establish that new baseline of ordinary. Mm -hmm. And for Strange Eons, the, the element that I came up with when I was outlining it, and then Adam Daigle ran with it in, in the development of all of it, was that um, you start your characters out and they have uh, they don't remember the past several years of their lives. And they start up in this asylum as uh, prisoners inside this asylum. And um, as the campaign unfolds, and your player characters are, you know, expanding their powers as, as however you want them to expand because you're making those choices. You start learning elements that that interregnum of your character's memories where you don't know what you're going on, you start finding out you were not very nice people. And that the things that you were doing before that maybe is part of the problem of why you're in the situation as you are now. And um, Slight spoilers if you haven't uh, played uh, the Strange Eons game yet, but the way that all plans out is at the point where you figure out that you were working with the bad guy and they wiped your memory and threw you in the, the asylum, you basically regain all of your memories. And the way that works in a game like Pathfinder is that's basically experience points. You just get a big chunk of experience points all at once and you can then level up. So it's a reward. But at the same point, you learn about all this other stuff that you've done that is just, just you know, awful stuff that then you have to go forward and fix. So it's kind of messes with, it's really messing with the expectation, you know, of, of what's going on in, uh, in building a storyline. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's tricky um, to do something, to, to get horror done in a, uh, in a fantasy setting. It works a lot better when you're low level and you don't have as many resources. Um, once you get high level, it starts to shift away from horror into more just like dark fantasy, which is sort of the same, a different type of uh, element. You know, there's a lot of horror elements in uh, the Lord of the Rings, um, like this giant spider crawling around and, and it's like all of the imagery that you see in, in Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings movies, there's a lot of horror elements in there that's just spooky. Um, it doesn't really have the same element of like doom. It's frustrating when you want to throw a, a massive monster yeah. to communicate to them. Yeah. This is too tough for you to beat run away and feel yeah. the horror and failure yeah. when players would rather just TPK themselves. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, after a couple of TPKs, they eventually get the message. <laughs> um, but, That's true. Um, uh, and, and, and communication ahead of time. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, in terms of helplessness, there are a few things that I do. A lot is built into the game mechanics. Um, I do heavy reliance on dreams. I think that pops mm -hmm. up in Strange Hands a lot. Mm -hmm. And then there's stuff where, for example, wizards are still dependent on their spell books, so you open your spell book, and rather than what you wrote in there, there's a different message. And so there's a lot of reliance on illusions, on 
someone else's handwriting being in there, writing cryptic notes, taunting you, cool. whatever. And I you're like, like how did somebody get into my spell book? How did this happen? I, it was never out of my possession. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of things that you don't necessarily have to explain, or they can say, okay, well, I know that I have this power, and for you to have done this without me noticing it, or sometimes they do notice it, you mm -hmm. know, it's like roll a spellcraft check, okay, mm -hmm. you notice that something is changing. Um, so they understand that they are being influenced, and that implies a certain level of power above what they have. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you can do something like that, have them, in this scenario, if they, they open their spellbook and they see some strange handwriting in there, um, you can either play along with it, like say, well, make it, you made that, if you've been doing stuff like make make perception checks at random and then people don't, they were not really, they were like uh, red herrings and all that. You can say, well, you, now that you think about it, earlier in the, the day when you were trying to find that perception check and you were back in the, the, the tavern, Nobody really rolled high enough, so maybe that has something to do with it. And then that can shift their attentions away from, like, how did this happen in my spellbook to going back to that encounter in the tavern and, and investigating it. And then, uh, then you can have them start, you know, learning more about what this mystery is going on. And if you have a plan for it, that's great. And you can go forward with it. Um, or it could be something as simple as, um, I mean, you're the GM. You don't have to follow the rules. You know, that's, that's the player characters. And, and not being forced to follow the rules is uh, is, a, is a really powerful tool in this case. You could do all sorts of things. You've got to have your the buy-in of your players. You've got to have goes the buy-in. goes back to the consent. Yeah. Like you, yeah. you consent. We're playing a horror game. Some of the stuff that's going on in here is maybe something that you're not going to be expecting uh, is by the rules or anything like that. Um, yeah, yeah, generally when I'm running horror, it's pretty much, okay, we're going to go by the book on combat. In combat, it's always going to run by the rules. I'm not going to cheat there. Mm -hmm. And divinations, I will not cheat there. Anything else? No. I make yeah. the rules. <laughs> That's that's actually that's yeah. a really cool. You're way not to cheating look at if you're the boss. You guys yeah. have your rules. <laughs> yeah. I have my rules. Sometimes they overlap. Dreams are an excellent way to do all of this, and you don't always have to tell people that they're dreaming. You know, mm -hmm. if if um, you're running a game and it's a, you don't want to do it too often. Like if there's a TPK and then you go, oh, then you all wake up. You don't. You can do that. I think maybe once. Never. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but you can also um, use dreams to um, just be more subtle about what's going on. Uh, one of my favorite tricks is uh, when the party, you know, they camp at the night or whatever, and they're like at some wilderness location. Um, you can start this up by saying, all right, everybody, once you go to sleep, everybody make a will save. And like somebody will roll a four and a five and a 10 and 20 and a 25. You pick the one in the middle and you take everybody out of the room. And then one at a time, you just describe their dreams to them and you describe your dreams to them. And like one of the, they don't have to be scary or anything like that. But then one of the players you take out and you say like, hey, um, did you see Game of Thrones last night? That was whatever, you just chat and whatever. You don't tell them anything. They don't. They didn't have a dream. And then you bring them back in and people are comparing us. It's like, I didn't get a dream. What does that mean? Or you can do the, the exact opposite is you tell them all the same dream and they start comparing us like they all have the same dream. And, and you put the onus then on the player characters to generate the feeling of horror because they're the ones telling the story now. You just planted like these, these you know, misleading seeds in their in their brains. Yeah, and sometimes they come up with scarier things than you necessarily had planned, and then oh, yeah. that's great to go. Pick. That's always the best way is if yeah. they come up with something super frightening. You're like, oh yeah, that's a great idea. I totally that's... had that plan the whole time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> do you want to open to questions? Or do you want yeah, to... Wait, I want to tell my second story. Oh, that's yeah, right. Okay, do it. Okay, do it. Do a story, and then we'll okay. have questions. My second story, then we'll have questions. Um, so one of the things that is really hard to do in tabletop is to do jump scares. I mean, we've talked a lot about psychological scares, and I think the Jenga Tower gets pretty close to that, too. Jump scares are hard because, you know, when you're watching a movie and you know it's coming, you don't get the same effect at all, ever. So 
How to pull off a jump scare in a tabletop game. Oh. All right. This is a bag of gummy worms. I was actually going to set this up, and then I thought it would be really mean to make somebody actually do this, so I'm just going to lay out the props for you. <laughs> I don't know if you guys remember, in elementary school, haunted houses around Halloween, sometimes uh, you'd have like a bowl of cold spaghetti noodles or slimy gummy worms that yeah. had been rinsed in water, and they're like, feel the cold corpse worms. Ooh, they ride the right in your guts. It's so nasty. Yeah. And it is kind of gross because they're all slimy and ill. Um, so yeah. you, put, you put the slimy, ill gummy worms in a bucket. In the bucket, there is an Easter egg, and the Easter egg is a clue. Your player has to reach in blindfolded to grab the clue. Also in the bucket is a remote-controlled personal device, <laughs> Bluetooth-enabled, and this thing has a listening mode, so you can chime, or you can get it to sense loud noises. So, you hit the boom on the sound system, and it goes boom, and then <laughs> and the worms start moving, that's awesome. and that's your jump scare. Oh that's God. awesome. That's awesome. Wow. <laughs> I gotta try that one on Wes. Good idea. <laughs> good idea. Cool. Uh, let's do some questions. You want a question? Oh, sure. So, hey. Uh, you kind of mentioned about having no-win scenarios and feelings of helplessness and all the rest of that. Do you think that that's something that kind of falls into the consent category where you need to tell the group beforehand, you know, hey, we're going to sit down, we're going to be playing through strange aeons. Uh, sometimes everyone might die. Um, I think that that's certainly, you might want to talk about like the, the, uh, the, the plan for like what happens in a total party kill type situation. Or as I like to call it in my pirate game that I was in, a total pirate kill. Um, it's, uh, Nobody's it's, a pirate anymore. Yeah, there's still sour grapes there. But, uh, um, I think for a long-term game like a campaign where the whole point is like building your character's resources, um, it's it's not fun to have a sudden end like that. And so if if that's part of the plan, you might want to let people know it's like I've got there's a there's an end point that will happen and just Again, get the consent in there. For something like a one-shot, you might want to say something like, we're going to be playing for four hours or until you're all dead. And then that's sort of, you know, if you're good, you can get to the end. That's kind of how I run my Call of Cthulhu games. It's like, I'm here to run the game for four hours, and if uh, people start dying, it might be three hours. <laughs> so I think that's probably the best way to handle it. It's definitely consent. We have a tool to get around that uh, where the consent's not much of a problem. Uh, in one of our campaigns, we wanted to make lethality, but we didn't want the campaign characters to die, because who does? Mm -hmm. they, they have things to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, that is true. But um, we have things to do with them that the story needs them to be around for a while. So um, you find a journal. When the players finally have a chance to read the journal, you hand out new character sheets, and they all play the events that happen in the journal. And that can be as lethal, as horrifying, as whatever, as the consents for description mm -hmm can go um, with those people never needing to extend beyond the scene or two or three scenes, whatever it is with them, um, so that you can get all the feels from that and enough attachment to those characters in the first scene, the, the second and third scene that where things get worse. That's fine because it's not happening to their main characters, so you're not broaching that part of the consent for the overall gameplay. Cool. Uh, from Twitch, TRDG11 wants to know, how best to get across how a PC's soul is in danger? Oh, interesting. Ooh. I assume the soul is still inside their body. I think that's the assumption. <laughs> um, 
I think the best way to do that is just it's I, I'm a big fan of show don't tell mm -hmm. so you've got an infinite number of NPCs to do terrible things to um, <laughs> and uh, again you don't want to like focus only on the NPCs that the player characters have you know established long relationships with but you can do something like uh, say run a game like have like the, the the king basically or whoever is giving the quest is is had this happen to them or somebody they know and just ex have it happen on screen or something like that. I think really one of my jokes is is um is is at some point somebody fails the saving throws like okay you failed your save you get to show us how the monster works and uh, <laughs> that basically gives you a chance to like show what's going on. As for like just visuals, I just draw upon like a lot of just like all the horror movies and, and stories and stuff that I've read like well they like their skins like withering in on their body yeah. or they're like yeah. movie and TV have to show it yeah. because they can't just do um, uh, tell, tell you oh your whole soul's in danger and have viewers feel that that means anything yeah. I mean assuming we're talking about like a good character it's you know, it's stuff like your hand blisters when you touch your holy symbol. Yeah. You look in the mirror and you don't see yourself for a second. That's a great Yeah, point. I think very small sensory details are, are really key uh, that can sort of build toward that assumption when you, like James was saying, like you show that but you don't tell that and you let them draw that conclusion themselves. Say they, they had an interaction with the devil, for example, mm -hmm. in Pathfinder and uh, it was a really weird interaction but the devil uh, ended up actually giving them something that they wanted and uh, didn't necessarily do this awful thing that the players mm -hmm. were expecting, well, then maybe it turns out that uh, every time the player character walks by the party, they smell a little whiff of brimstone, or uh, their eyes will occasionally flash red um, back and forth, or they will occasionally have dissociative periods where um, they'll speak in Infernal, or they'll say this devil's true name, or something like that, um, just to really convey that that interaction may be leading them toward something really terrible, and, that, and that's a good opportunity to let the players uh, and, and the specific player of that player character try to figure out what exactly is happening and going on and you can really kind of lead them in uh, ways that their yeah. minds conjure up from those things. Yeah. Well, one take on that too is, is using elements that aren't visual. Like that goes back to the listen check you're saying. Like yeah. rather than saying something is weird looking, have it smell weird or feel yeah. weird or taste weird. Like if somebody's like, you suddenly taste caramel and yeah, yeah. there's no reason for that and that they start associating this sort of element with like situations, it's, yeah. it's, it's a strong Or you know, like a uh, symbol of Asmodeus uh, occasionally will yep. prickle up from their skin and they'll look down and yeah. they'll see it and it will start to itch and then they'll say, oh my god, what's happened to me? And they'll no, show it to the other medieval. player character and the other player character will be like, I don't, no, there's same. nothing. Yeah, medieval lore is full of tales in yeah. which internal corruption is expressed externally yes. yeah. through mm -hmm. signs on the body that aren't I don't have decrepitude, but I have black veins. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I have animals that are spooked by my presence. Mm -hmm. yeah. Milk curdles around me. Yeah, all sorts of things. Cool. Uh, what's the best way to keep the tension over multiple sessions? Most horror games that I play are the one shots or Call of Cthulhu games where you die to end it. So how do you keep that tension? Keep it going. It's it overarching mystery. That's yeah. the one that I always go to. Yeah. There's a big puzzle you're trying to solve it. Um, and the stakes are high for you to solve it. As long as that mystery is pulling them along, and I usually layer it in with several other ones, but that's my main pull. Yeah. And ending the session with something uh, really weird or bizarre, or memorable, or something that doesn't make sense at all is a good way to like uh, cliffhanger. Type yeah, thing. A, cl a cliffhanger. Let them come back and be like, "Oh my gosh, you remember that weird thing that happened? We got to figure out what's going on with that." And then yeah. that will lead the lead them forward in the momentum um, to do the the next thing that you have planned. Uh, my my question is kind of based on that. Um, 
like Pathfinder specifically kind of conditions you as a player uh, that you are working towards a goal and you succeed at that goal. With horror games, succeeding isn't always necessarily the best thing. For me, like working that tension is you survived. You didn't necessarily win, but you survived. And by surviving, you did win. Mm -hmm. So how do you attempt to mitigate uh, as players come in who may not be necessarily um, experienced with horror role-playing games to get them to think not necessarily I'm going to slay the dragon but I survived encountering the dragon and it was one of the scariest things I've ever had um, one option always is like maybe if you want to run you don't have to use Pathfinder for every game like you <laughs> might want to use Dread or Call of Cthulhu or a different game to run that session as a one shot and just get different sort of flavors in there but one thing that I've done in some games is, is oh, well, the start of Wrath of the Righteous is a good example. You start that out and you're having a party in the streets and then all of a sudden this Balor demon shows up, lops the head off of a silver dragon that has been guarding the city and the cracks open up and you fall into the ground and there's all of this awful stuff going on as this, this final crusade against the demons happens. Your player characters are first level. There's no way you can handle this. The goal is not at this point kill the demon, it's get out of these caves that you've fallen into. And there's yeah. like all these other people that are wounded that you've got to help out with. And um, it's, a, it's a question of scope, really. In a case like that, the end game over the course of an entire campaign is to kill that demon. But at the very start, it's basically just survival. And I think skewing it towards lower level stuff is, is probably a good, a good bet there. That's true. I think Cosmic Mystery has a lot to do with it. Um, and if... The game runs, most of my horror has actually been really long campaigns, like multi-year campaigns, not one-shots. So for me, learning a lot about how horror one-shot works has been very educational to me over this mm. seminar. But over the long campaigns, you have a lot of recurring villains, you have a lot of lower-level layered villains, and they've gone through so much hell by the end of the game that when they finally do take down the big bads, and it's always a big bads, um, <laughs> it almost doesn't matter because you do get that moment of catharsis and victory but you still remember everything you had to crawl over to get there yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, last question is going to be from twitch yellow lug asks my players are just about to face a huge green dragon what advice can you give me to make the dragon more menacing and always keep my players on their toes role play or combat related um if you have players that are they have system mastery and they know the game really well and like green dragon is, is a good example because it's been in, in the, the game forever uh, it's like a green dragon it lives in the forest it breathes out poison gas everybody knows about it um you start messing with the word the words you use to describe it you say the dragon shows up and it breathes out worms and those worms just kind of spray out and uh do damage to you and uh, that damage isn't poison damage it's like it's eating away at your memory and the damage is basically you know causing you to forget parts of yourself and then you say yeah you take four points of damage because you've forgotten you know whatever it's mental damage or something like that but the fact that this dragon is breathing out worms and maybe the dragon's like wings are just skeletal but it can still fly and maybe you can even go as far as saying like its scales aren't green its scales are kind of covered with like uh, some sort of like black root system that has grown all over his body um, statistics you're using is just an adult green dragon but the way you describe it throws everybody off kilter and you don't have to do much changing to make them say that like maybe this green dragon maybe we don't know what we're, yeah. we're going up against we've offered a lot of tools and I'm going to quickly try and apply them to the green dragon mm -hmm. there's mm -hmm. the eeriness the mm -hmm. breaking the rules of normalcy that we right. have there's the removing resources to 
uh, make it so that things don't seem like you can use them. Uh, they might be perfectly functional if you can get over your hesitation, but mm -hmm. for some reason you've been given a hesitation. In mine, you can have a journal about the first people who tried to face this and have them actually go up against it with way under-level characters mm -hmm. or the same level characters and just get totally destroyed in, um, in a uh, scene that was intended to kill these other players that you get to play out. Mm -hmm. um, and trying to attach myself too mentally to uh, one of the suggestions you made uh, uh, on a tool in which you could offer helplessness for the characters. Um, one thing I, I didn't really go into too much, um, but uh, using just like magic that you describe as not immediately recognizable. So if, if it's paralyzation, um, if it's some sort of divination or some sort of ability or something like that, um, basically uh, describing things in a way that, the, that take the players off guard, right? Mm -hmm. So letting them be present in that scene and not able to actually recognize mechanically what's happening is, is scary to people with a lot of system mastery. Yeah, yeah. like you can describe a fireball. The, the wizard casts a spell and all of a sudden your skin just starts blistering. Yeah. And it's just doing the same thing. It's, it's doing like 12 points of fire damage. But the fact that it, the fireball was invisible makes the players kind of not really know what they're up against. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and when players don't know what they're up against, that's when they get hesitant. Yeah, so describing, um, like James was sort of saying, describing uh, what the green dragon looks like, mm -hmm. or maybe the green dragon's abilities, maybe all of its claws are sort of fused together and it's punching with them instead of raking with yeah. them. Um, and even going further and using that a little bit as foreshadowing, if this person is going to be advancing in the campaign a little bit more and they know uh, like a future plot point that it's gonna, that it could point to, um, it could allow the player characters to sort of uh, embark on an investigation that could then lead them into the, the next thing that they have to face. Yeah. So that it's not just this green dragon. It's, oh, this is way more than we even thought and we barely survived this green dragon. What in the world could be coming up next? And that's yeah. created your tension going forward. And the more you do this stuff with the same group, the more you establish you know, this sort of pattern of, of creepiness. And then it works pretty good. Cool. Your phone. I think we You're have five minutes left. Yeah, <laughs> five minutes left. I think uh, we could do one last lightning round question. If anyone's got one final question or one from Twitch, maybe. Yeah. Uh, where you're caught up on there? Sorry. Okay, okay. Cool. Well, thanks. Thank everybody. you all for coming. Thank you guys. Great.